the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Friday, February 24th, 2023. Open Lines Friday. Anything on your mind? 602-508-0960. 602-508-0960. We've got the whole complement of production team here with uh, Bill as our uh, chief producer. We have David Dahl as our associate producer. Is Rusty there, too? Did I see Rusty's head over there? I think I did. Our opening today begins with an old text from the now ailing former President Jimmy Carter. For years or decades since 1979, his famous Malay speech that year was criticized and identified in helping end his presidency the following year. It was to be known as the crisis and confidence speech and became better known as the Malay's speech. And do you know who dubbed it the Malay's speech? Ted Kennedy. The word malaise is actually not in the speech itself. And while it was panned by the Kennedys and on our side, all the Republicans, it was panned for being critical of America, for blaming not our politics, but our people. Our fault, borrowing from Hamlet, one might have put it, lay not in the stars or anyone else, according to Jimmy Carter, but in ourselves. At least that's what he was trying to tell us. And for years it was considered a bad thing to criticize your constituents this way or have them be read as their president criticizing them, including your fellow countrymen. Here was the key line or series of lines from that 1979 speech of Jimmy Carter's quote, I want to talk to you now about a fundamental threat to American democracy. I do not mean our political and civil liberties. They will endure. I do not refer to the outward strength of America, a nation that is at peace tonight everywhere in the world with unmatched economic power and military might. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways, he went on. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. Close quote. Now, what's interesting and I do have to credit the nettlesome Peggy Noonan for reminding me of this in her column today, is there are parts of the speech that are so very good and perhaps were just given at the wrong time and perhaps also by the wrong president. By the way, before we get and go a little deeper, if you need further understanding or proof of how far the Democratic Party has moved since even those days, try this excerpt from the speech from his point about our energy crisis. Quote, we have more oil in our shale alone than several Saudi Arabias. We have more coal than any nation on earth, close quote. Try putting that in the speech of any Democrats today. But going a little bigger and deeper, it is interesting to think about this notion of a crisis in confidence. The truth is, I think we all feel it now, which is why it was perhaps the wrong time and the wrong president when first stated. As keep in mind, throughout the speech, Jimmy Carter was attesting throughout the speech to the patriotism that should abide in our country. Another interesting thing for a Democrat to say, isn't it? 
This is how he closed that speech in 1979, after all. Listen to these words from Jimmy Carter. Quote, whenever you have a chance, say something good about our country. With God's help and for the sake of our nation, it is time for us to join hands in America. Close quote. When is the last time a Democrat said something, say something good about your country? The truth is the view that the call to American greatness or exceptionalism or putting America first became a clang or a buzzword or shibboleth for the Democrats to run against. And that's the real shame. What party, after all, fomented two national anthems? What party fomented taking a knee for the star-spangled banner in verse as much as imagery, after all? What party has practically turned the notion of a proud-to-be-an-American into America is systematically racist theme? What party and what movement, think the 1619 curriculum and movement, encouraged people to take their American flags down? You know that story, right? The creator of the 1619 curriculum and movement, Nicole Hannah-Jones, told her dad, a Vietnam veteran, to take their American flag in their front yard down for, as she told him, as she said she learned in school, key words that, learned in school, the flag did not represent them. There sadly and soon will be tributes to Jimmy Carter. It will be interesting to see if any from the left remind us or are reminded by the fact and history that he wanted people to say something good about America and that he bewailed that too many here had a down market view of their country, this country. This was never, by the way, the Republican problem, which may be why, in part, Ted Kennedy challenged Jimmy Carter and created the epithet of malaise for that speech. This was always an internecine and intramural Democratic Party fight. You will recall this is precisely what both Richard Nixon in 1968 and Ronald Reagan in 1980 ran against, the liberal left investment in declaiming about America. Nixon, looking at the crime and riots in 1968, put it this way in his convention speech. Let me quote at length. Quote, as we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And we see and hear these things, as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? Did American boys die in Normandy and Korea and in Valley Forge for this? He goes on, listen to the answer to those questions. There is another voice. It is the quiet voice in the tumult and the shouting. It is the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators. They are not racists or sick. They are not guilty of the crime that plagues the land. Close quote. As many of you know, I've always landed on that line of his that Americans are not sick. That was the line of the left in the 1960s, that we were, in fact, a sick country. That is in part why I hated what we did to ourselves in COVID, particularly with the masks, which were walking billboards and broadcasts to one another, that we were all infirm and sick when we all were not. There was an investment in the 1960s as much as in the 2020s from the left to instantiate and insist, oh, yes, we are all sick because we are all sick. This is likely what bothers so many with things like Lee Greenwood's song, Proud to be an American, which became Ronald Reagan's theme song. Nothing bothered and bothers the left so much, which is why Barack Obama choked on saying he believed in American exceptionalism. To him, when asked about it in 2009, he said, quote, I believe in American 
excuse me, he said, quote, I believe in American exceptionalism, just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British ex- exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism, close quote. That's what you might call a swing and a miss. You can't have one great thing if all other things are equally great. After all, great and exceptional are, surp- are superlatives. What Obama was representing was relativism, that such notions of good and bad are not dependent on some identifiable authority or representation, but on where you are and, I suppose, who you are. Neither Thomas Jefferson nor Abraham Lincoln said, we think we are the world's last best hope of Earth, or we, like the French, are the last best hope of Earth, or we believe we are the last best hope of Earth, just as the French think they are. No, we were something and supposed to be something different and special here. Anyway, once upon a time, at least, Jimmy Carter got it and would denounce those in his party that thought otherwise. His defeat, in part by weakening him from the leftist run against him by Ted Kennedy, forever since froze the Democratic Party in that mode and in that mood. And if Aristotle is right that the character of a people is shaped by the character of its leadership, beware. Beware if the character of the people is shaped by the character of its leadership. For we have a leadership today that is feeble, at best. And my worry is that it is enfeebling to the rest of us, leading to a spreading and exacerbating crisis and confidence. In 1980, Ronald Reagan, in his acceptance speech, put it this way, quote, My view of government places trust not in one person or one party, but in those values that transcend persons and parties. The trust is where it belongs, in the people. The responsibility to live up to that trust is where it belongs, in their elected leaders. That kind of relationship between the people and their elected leaders is a special kind of compact, close quote. So, what have you when a leader is weak, enfeebled, and perhaps even infirm in all contexts of that word? Let it not affect the people or the country, please. The failure right now is in our elected leaders who are infecting us, Aristotle-like, and the party that wanted to turn away from American greatness, to the malaise they always sought for us, the nostalgia de la boue, or thirst, savoring, longing for the mud. You can have that. Once upon a time, though, even though he ended up giving us that via his policies, we had a president in the Democratic Party who warned against it. We Republicans and conservatives did not need that warning. His party did. They didn't heed it. And to quote from Thomas More, I show you the times. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Your open line Fridays. John is in Peoria. Hello, John. Hey, Seth. How are you, sir? I am doing fine. How are you? Me too, me too. You on your way to get some good seafood tonight? uh, Well, yeah, because it's uh, Lent. Yeah, I thought so. And didn't we once talk about that seafood joint you like up on the 17, or am I misremembering? Yeah, no, no, you're not misremembering. Matter of fact, uh, I'm going to a sushi place tonight. It's up in, uh, what's the name of that place, way up north in Scottsdale? Um, I guess guess that's a form of seafood, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, yeah, good. Absolutely. Good, good, good. All right. 
Yeah, uh, well, I'll have to give you the name of it. It's called Swan Sushi. Look it up. It's uh, all right. brand new, Okay. and the guy is Chef Lee. He's a, such a beautiful man. Oh, wonderful. Chef Lee, yeah. Good. Chef Lee Swan Sushi. Love it. Um, and it's in one of these little places north on North Scottsdale Road, um, kind of way up there. And I, I'm, I'm forgetting the mall areas. It's okay. It's, it's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get yeah, it. Yeah, but you we'll check out Swan Sushi. I appreciate anyhow, that. Yes, sir. Uh, here's the deal. Yep. Uh, <laughs> this is bordering on Nazi eugenics. Okay. Listen to this. Yeah. This local official in Framington or farming, Farmingham, Massachusetts. Framingham, right? yeah, Framingham, Massachusetts, a little bit uh, west of Boston. Okay, Michael Hugo's his name, and he's the chair of the Democratic uh, Committee. And they were having the council city meeting, and they were talking about uh, crisis pregnancy centers and access to abortion. He said, "Look, uh, he wanted a declaration against against somebody." He said, look, these crisis pregnant senators could misdiagnose a defect in the womb, leading to them being born and becoming a strain on the school system. Uh-oh. Man, I thought we Uh-oh. hit it all, you know, when it's uh, when we're almost close to infanticide in yes. this country, or pra- wow. perhaps in wow. some areas infanticide. Can wow. you imagine that? Is there a, uh, is there a call? Days. Is there a call from uh, oh, there was a huge the disabilities the community disability. there? There should be. Yes, yes, and it, the chairman of the Farmingham Disabilities Commission, her name is Cheryl Goldstein, uh-huh. she said, because she's got two disabled children, uh-huh. that my children who had special needs were not worth the expense in the school system for being born. Can you imagine that yeah. we're at this point? There is something, uh, <sighs> you just got to take a deep breath before you even speak on these things, right? Um, I know, there, it's there, not there, eugenics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there is there is something very sadly eugenicist in the back of this entire movement. And once in a while, they can't keep it to themselves. Once in a while, that air does come out of that balloon. Is he making any apologies? Is there any shame about this? Oh, it took him 10 days with, after the outcry. And now they're going to have a city council meeting, the next city council meeting. Can't wait till that one, because that one's going to be in the news. I think it's at the end of the month, yeah. the 28th. Boy, wrong so wrong state to say and, that in, wrong time of the year to say that in, wrong uh, wrong thing to say generally. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Okay. Wow. Wow, John. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Well, <clears throat> if he is apologizing or if he uh, ends up having to resign— We'll put in a good word for the Democratic Party of Framingham in this respect. Um, uh, the Tucson Democratic Party took no took no shame, and there were no resignations when they held an F the 4th of July celebration, except they didn't use the letter F. They used the whole word. Uh, you remember that last year? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. So, you know, this once in a while, you know, these these— these chair once in a while, boy, they they tell you who they are. You know when reminds me of that line. You know when someone tells you who they are, when someone shows you who they are, trust them, trust them, believe them. And it 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 speaks to your monologue, Seth, about uh, former President Carter. Like, there's no more Democrats. Like, I mean, I don't think there's any Democrats like him. Well, that's not. There's no more old Democrats. Yeah, that, Jimmy so. Carter is an interesting touchstone for so many measurements, or I, I should say, an interesting yardstick for so many measurements. Um, you know, during the 
Trump years, and one might say, you know, one could look to other presidencies perhaps as well. But when people were talking about how you, you know, for those who were critical of Donald Trump, thought that they could make a meal of his morality, I said, okay, I understand. But the most moral president we probably ever had in and of himself and in and of his personal ethics and the way he spoke was Jimmy Carter. And because we didn't have Joe Biden is probably the worst presidency, at least in our lifetimes, John, right? I mean, there was the connection, right? The connection between personal. Now, the other interesting yardstick about Jimmy Carter, and this was a wake up call for um, the evangelical movement in America, is a lot of people may not remember this. But uh, a lot of evangelical conservatives supported his 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 candidacy in 1976. Um, the beginning of the moral majority, Gerald, Jerry Falwell and that whole group, they were rallying for Jimmy Carter against Jerry Ford in 1976. Uh, and then it took him just only a couple of years to realize, oh, no, 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 no. Our future's with the Republican Party. Yeah. Yeah. And am I am I using this word right, Seth? Uh, what a dichotomy! One yeah. spec- end of the spectrum to the yeah. Well, the you know they 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 were they they were they were um, originally uh, attracted to the notion in the year of the evangelical, which I believe 1976 was, that he said he was he I think he was the first presidential candidate to ever proclaim he was born again. That was the year Chuck Colson's book titled "Born Again" came out, and I think if I have my memory about this right. A woman in New Hampshire saw Jimmy Carter, knowing he came from a deep uh, Southern Baptist background, thrust the book in his face and asked him, are you born again? And Jimmy Carter said, yes, I am. And uh, that, you know, that turned a lot of minds Um, and uh, it turned a lot of minds for thinking, you know, he was going to take social values seriously or, or at least conservatively. Jerry Ford, you will recall, was not a particularly socially conservative uh, uh, Republican and his wife Betty Ford, uh, even less so. And you know, issues of social conservatism were were just kind of coming onto the scene in do large in large part because uh, Roe versus Wade had just been decided only a couple years before that, and things like race based affirmative action were taking hold uh, from the Johnson and Nixon administrations. So. When we think of the socially conservative issues that we talk about, they were kind of new in the 70s, and uh, the evangelical movement thought they would have perhaps a champion in uh, a fellow, a fellow, uh, a fellow uh, deeply believing Christian. Um, but it turned out uh, the left can ruin everything, as Dennis Prager says, and it, and it ruined his, his mores and values ultimately as well. Kind of an interesting history there. Uh, so yeah, the dichotomy— was interesting. I wouldn't say uh, that the evangelicals and the moral majority, or what later became known as the Christian Coalition, I wouldn't say their values changed. It's just they realized that the party they originally thought might come to their aid and succor had changed. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Have a, a continued uh, Blessed Lenten season uh, and uh, open line Friday, 602-508-0960. Anything on your mind? We'll be right back. Welcome back with the opening to the theme to the Rockford Files, right? I always think it is, <laughs> and it never is, is it? It's something else. It's something you threw in, right, Bill? Oh, it's Fox on the Run? Yeah. 
Okay. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Open line Friday, 602-508-0960. We try and do a little fun and culture on Fridays. And uh, whenever David's in, he's always wearing a political pin. And honest to goodness, folks, we did not plan this. We, no, we, we didn't. <laughs> this was totally unplanned. But I'm looking at his pin right now for the first time. It's a green pin that says Carter Mondale, right? Yes, re-elect Carter Mondale. So we even had the right year. Yeah, we even had the right year in 1980. I remember those green pins. Um I was uh, I was uh, young, but becoming ever more politically aware in those days. And I remember at my school, uh, you didn't see a lot of those pins where I went to uh, where I went to school. I think it must have been the fourth or fifth grade. I'm thinking, and no, it would have been yeah, fifth grade. And um, and I remember uh, the 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 Reagan country pin. I don't know if you have one, but it was Reagan in a cowboy hat. Many people can remember that picture, but it said, "This is Reagan country." I remember there were more of those than there were the Carter Carter Mondale pins. Um, what do you want to say about it? Anything? Oh, nothing. I think we've we've said all that needs to be we've said. We've said all that needs to be said. Hour, okay. right? <laughs> all right. We've said all that. I do need- have one of those Reagan country pins. I'll have to bring that in next. Oh, week. okay. Yes. Yeah. Do 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 do. do do that, please. Do you have a Ted Kennedy for President Pence? I do. Oh, yes. th- where I, that would be interesting to I see. Have one too. from seventy-two, yeah. and One from eighty. One from seventy-two and one from eighty. That's right. He thought he could run in seventy-two. He thought wrongly. That Chappaquiddick thing ruined him. He could have run uh, probably in seventy-six and won, but for Chappaquiddick, he probably would have beaten Carter in seventy-six, uh, but for Chappaquiddick. Uh, Bill, this is the segment where you get to sweat coldly, where we ask, what did our production team learn this week? Bill, we'll start with you. You're the chief producer. What did you learn this week? Well, coldly is the best way to sweat. Yes. How about this? Three things that mo- almost everyone thinks they're good at, yeah. but not everyone is. Uh, and you learned three that you are, or are they all the same three things for everyone? Pretty universal. Oh, really? I mean, some are good, but everyone thinks they're good at these three. Okay. Driving. Yeah. Not everybody's a good driver. No. But who will among... No one has ever said, I'm a bad driver. You're totally right. This is good. You're totally right about this. I always say, I'm an excellent driver. Yeah, an excellent driver. Sense of humor. Everyone thinks they have a good sense of humor. No one has ever said, I don't have a good sense of humor. You're right. 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 But there are plenty with them. And there are plenty with them, yes. And thinking independently or for oneself. Right. Who and says, oh, I follow the herd. Yeah, I just follow the herd. I'm a follower. Now, so nice. Did you come up with those on your own? I sure did. On, on, on one of your morning walks? Yeah, yeah a, lot, a lot comes to me. It, it's a long walk. It's a long morning walk. You, you, yes. What did Truman call his morning walks? Do you know? Oh, no, I don't. Harry Truman had a regular morning walk. You know what he called them? His morning constitutionals. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. All right, David, what did you learn this week? Uh, famed fashion designer Ralph Lauren yeah. changed his last name as yeah. a teenager yeah. in honor of Lauren Bacall. Lauren is not the original name that he had. Interesting. To honor a fellow New Yorker of Jewish descent. I would have never guessed that, but it does help people remember how to pronounce his last name. A lot of people say Ralph Lauren, and that's wrong. Yes, so I've been told. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's wrong. But don't, don't most people say that? Yes. Most people yeah. say Ralph L- Lauren. It's Ralph Lauren, and now we know why. Hence Lauren Bacall. Yeah, hence Lauren Bacall. Who and that's was... not even her real name either. <laughs> no, right, <laughs> right, right. right. This is an ever-escalating yeah. kaleidoscope. I want to talk—thank you. Two, two very edifying things. I thought you were going to say something about Ralph Lauren um, and, and um, 
and uh, the movie Annie Hall, mm, yes. which featured prominently on Dennis Prager's show today. Did you catch that segment yet? Uh, Dennis Prager went into a thing on Annie Hall today. Annie, uh, Woody Allen is walking up and down the streets of New York looking for wisdom on how couples stay happy. And he, and, he, and he finds a couple. One of them, I'm trying to remember the actress. She was later a Charlie's Angel. She was, uh, what was her name? What was her name? Shelley Winter? Shelley? Was Shelley Winter? Something like that. Anyway, um, and the answer she get the answer Woody Allen gets uh, in asking this seemingly very happy-looking couple is, what keeps you happy? And they said, oh, we, we, don't, we don't think deeply about things. We're, we're very artificial in surface. <laughs> okay. That was uh, our constitutional culture segment. I want to get into something interesting with social media when we come right back. 602-508-0960. Thank you, David. Thank you, Bill. Well done. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. You've probably been hearing me talk about why refi for a while now. And if you still have some questions, they'd love for you to give them a call and put you in touch with any number of their uh, very satisfied uh, customers in the Phoenix area who have happily invested with them and are seeing great returns. Their phone number is 888-YREFI34. They also would like me to ask you how your IRA is doing. Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or the Fed? Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds? And you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA, and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's investyrefi.com. It's the letter Y. And you can call them as well at 888-Y-REFI-34. This piece was in the New York Times a couple of days ago. And I've been meaning to get to it. One uh, better than on a on a more culturally adept, uh, uh, more culturally apt Friday. Ross, do that. Wrote it, uh, and it is going to this issue and discussion about where all this teen depression is coming from. I have my own thoughts on it, but it's also created a debate in a lot of um, a lot of uh, social science uh, analyses. And I think Ross did a really good job. American teenagers and especially American teenage girls are increasingly miserable, he writes, more likely to entertain suicidal thoughts and act on them, more likely to experience depression, more likely to feel beset by persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, to quote a survey from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He writes that adults in every era tend to fret about the condition of the youth relative to the good old days when we ourselves were young and full of promise. But in the debate about these psychological trends, the alarmists have the better of the argument. As cataloged by NYU, New York University's Jonathan Haidt, a leading alarm sounder, in indicator after indicator, you see an inflection point somewhere in the early 2010s where a darkening begins. And that remains. Height thinks the key instigator is the rise of social media. Other causal candidates enumerated by Derek Thompson of The Atlantic tend to have a stronger ideological valence. A liberal might point to teenage anxiety about climate change or school shootings or the rise of Donald Trump. A conservative might insist that it's the baleful effects of identity politics or the isolation created by COVID-era lockdowns. Overall, do that rights. I think if you're looking for a single explanatory shock 
Heitz camp has the better of the argument. The timing of the mental health trend fits the smartphone's increasing substitution for in-person socialization, while the Great Awakening and Trumpism are more chronologically downstream. And the coronavirus era exacerbated the problem without being a decisive shift. You just wait on that one, by the way. Then data aside, having lived through the online revolution as both a participant and a parent, Ross writes, it seems obvious that social media has worsened the coming-of-age experience relative to the halcyon 1990s, creating a sense of another consciousness that's that's welded to your own consciousness and has its own say all the time as my fellow teenager of the 90s, Freddie DeBoer, wrote recently, which makes the general self-consciousness of adolescence feel much more brutal. But when you're analyzing the effects of technological shock, it's also useful to analyze the society that existed just as the shock arrived. On the Internet, we could have built any kind of world, Thompson writes. We built this one. Why have we done this to ourselves? One answer is that social media entered into a world that was experiencing the triumph of a certain kind of social liberalism, which the new text subjected to a stress test that it has conspicuously failed. By social liberalism, I don't mean the progressivism that took off in the Trump era, anti-racism and diversity, equity, inclusion, and Me Too stuff. I mean the more individualistic liberalism that emerged in the 1960s and experienced a second takeoff across the first decade of the 2000s. May I pause on that? The 1960s is probably a decent starting point. The more accurate one would be the 1970s, which is when Tom Wolfe wrote his essay called The Me Decade. That's another phrase, by the way, you can attribute to Tom Wolfe's creation. He's created a lot of phraseology, more than you know, or, or more than you think, I should say. But The Me Decade, which really took off in the 1970s, was all about the importance of your own feelings and how you feel more than, you know, what your obligation to society is or how you get happiness and satisfaction through earned efforts or through charitable works or through perhaps uh, volunteerism. The 1970s saw the advent, as Tom Wolfe writes in his essay on this, the advent of all these I think you could call a lot of them cults, uh, a lot of these healing centers, a lot of these new kind of quasi-religious psychological movements that really took off in great speed in California, but really throughout the rest of the country as well. So I think Ross might have—it's not wrong that it, to say that it began in the 60s, but the 1970s really is the touching point, is the starting point to it. Per Tom Wolfe, and then Christopher Lash's uh, huge best-selling book at the end of the decade um, of the 70s in 1979 called The Culture of Narcissism. The Culture of Narcissism, as you can see, would very much relate to the notion of the me decade, that you are the mo- the, your feelings are the most important thing, and your healing and your soothing and your anxieties um, more important to heal through whatever way you can. And it, by the way, was hardly ever— charitable acts, hardly ever volunteerism, hardly ever what you might call traditional religion. In any event, if I may, go back to Ross Duthat. Sorry for that long parenthetical. Uh, The individualistic liberalism, he says, its divining features were rapid secularization, the decline of Christian identification accelerated from the 1990s onward, and increasing social and sexual permissiveness, extending beyond support 
for same-sex marriage to beliefs about premarital sex, divorce, out-of-wedlock childbirth, marijuana use, and more. In the early Obama years, many liberals assumed that these trends were positive and healthy, or at least sustainable and manageable. They weren't yielding the social disorder that conservatives always fear. Crime was low, and the decline of the two-parent family could be treated mostly as an economic problem. And Blue America, or at least upper-class Blue America, seemed to be successfully balancing moral liberty and personal responsibility. But then the smartphone revolution asked people raised under these conditions with less family stability, weak attachments to religion, strong emphases on self-creation, and strong hostility to normal to normalcy to enter and forge a new social world. And they went forth and created the online world we know today with its pinball motion between extremes of toxic narcissism and the solidarity of the mob, its therapy speak unmoored from real community, its conspiracism and ideological crazes, its mimetic misery and despairing catastrophism, all of which made social liberalism look much more unsustainable and self-undermining than it did in 2008. It's threatened not just by political radicalism and returning disorder, but by a collapse of familial and romantic and even sexual connection, a terrible atomization and existential dread, a chasing after ever stranger gods. That's the social media world we created that Ross points out and Jonathan Haidt identifies as the beginning and the inflection or turning point when all these teen anxieties started to exacerbate. Pretty good article and a pretty good thesis. I'd love your thoughts on it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. I'm going to tell you a little secret about these studies on social media with regard to teen and adolescent anxiety and depression. Uh, there's a focus on that right now because every sane and normal society focuses first on its younger people than on its older or should we abandon that at our continuing peril. But the dirty little secret here, it's really not a secret, it's just not written about as much because of what I just said, is that the studies are showing that the social media attractions to adults are also causing and concerning for adult depression and anxiety as well, particularly adults uh, using sites like um, uh, TikTok, Facebook and Instagram. Um, you know, the, you can look it up for yourself. So I, I don't want to go into it, but I just I did want to point that out too. Adults who, it's it's a twofold problem. One is it's adults who act like children. It's adults. It's well, you might call it children trapped in adult bodies, or adults who who are infantilizing themselves on the one hand, and the other comparing uh, other people's best lives to their everyday life. That's that's one of the problems of social media. No one I, Bill had three three things that people said Bill my producer was talking about three things people will never say about themselves in the negative. No one says they're a bad driver. What were the other two? No one says they're a bad driver. No one says they uh, follow the crowd that they don't think independently and 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 what was and and uh, no one says they have a bad sense of humor. Right. Thank you for the pantomiming there, Marcel Marceau. Appreciate it. Um, yeah. Uh, no one posts on Facebook uh, bad moments unless it's a one-off with a pratfall or something embarrassing as a one-off. Mostly they are showing their extreme best selves and moments, and people tend to compare their lives to that. And if they're already on 
uh, TikTok or Instagram or Facebook uh, to look at other people's feeds along those lines, uh, you can rest assured their lives are not going to ever look like that. That's the kind of that's the attendant problem there. And you, am I making it clear? I don't mean to be uh, obfuscating on this. The but to return to the social anxiety and depression of our of our adolescents, uh, pay increasing attention to interesting senator. I know he gets attacked a lot, but even. Uh, the liberal, uh, the the uh, liberal writer um, Michelle uh, Goldberg at the New York Times, uh, she was the one that was on that stupid debate, you know, uh, in Canada. Even she has a column titled um, "Josh Hawley Might Be Right About Social Media." Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri, I think he's when he when he when he talks about social conditions, and so I I I, I think he's fantastic and worth very much paying attention to. We had him on the show a couple months ago, didn't we? Uh, and he has been on the case in the Senate of holding hearings on what social media is doing to the teen state of mind. Uh, worth paying attention to, as I say. Don't go away. We have a lot more coming right up. Dr. Zudi Jasser joining us on the other side. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. Salem 